Part two, chapter fourteen of Recollections of the Revolution and the Empire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter fourteen, eighteen eleven to eighteen thirteen, an audience with Napoleon. A few days later, we returned to Brussels, where the Emperor was expected during the spring. His brother Louis had deserted the throne of Holland where the iron hand of Napoleon had prevented him from carrying out his policy for the good of the country. He had left in Holland a very honourable record, as I know from King William himself. The people felt very differently about the administration of Monsieur de Selle, the son-in-law of Madame de Valence, whose memory there has been held in horror. The Emperor appointed him préfet at Amsterdam, where he did all the evil of which a man is capable who is absolutely devoid of principle. It was towards the spring of this year, 1811, as nearly as I can remember, that we received the visit, always dreaded by the préfet, of a council of state en mission, a kind of spy of high rank determined to find fault even with those whom he could not help esteeming. Monsieur Royal fell to the lot of Monsieur de la Tour du Pin, who realised at the time of the first visit that he would endeavour to do him all the harm possible. Nevertheless, during his sojourn we gave him a dinner, followed by a reception. I had said to the ladies who had shown kindness to me that they would do me a favour in coming to pass the evening with us. After dinner, on returning to the Grand Salon, we found united there all the most distinguished persons of the city of Brussels, both men and women. Monsieur Réal was stupefied by the names, the manners and the jewels. He could not refrain from saying to Monsieur de la Tour du Pin, Monsieur, voilà un salon qui m'offisque terriblement. To which my husband replied, I'm very sorry, but fortunately it does not have the same effect on the Emperor. The 19th of September, 1811, the Emperor set out from Paris to visit the camp at Boulogne, the French fleet and the north of the Empire. The Empress went to Laken, near Brussels, where she arrived the night of the 21st or 22nd of September. We were invited to come to Laken every day to pass the evening and to play at Lotto. This lasted for a week and was very boring. The Empress on every occasion showed the greatest insipidness. Every day she said the same thing to me in giving me her pulse to count. Do you think that I have any fever? To which I invariably replied, Madame, I do not know anything about it. The Duc de Selle was charged with the task of arranging the morning promenades according to the weather. One day, when Marie-Louise visited the museum, she seemed to be struck by a handsome portrait of her illustrious grandmother, Marie-Thérèse. The Duc d'Orsel proposed to her to place the portrait in a salon at Laken. She replied, Oh, no, the frame is too old. Another time he suggested, as an interesting promenade, that part of the forest of Swine, known as the pilgrimage of the Archiduchesse Isabel, 
whose sanctity and goodness had remained in the hearts of the people. She replied that she did not like the woods. In fine, this insignificant woman, so unworthy of the great man whose destiny she shared, seemed to make it a point to be as disagreeable as possible to the Belgians, whose hearts were so disposed to love her. I never saw her again until after she lost her throne, and then she was still as destitute of intelligence. During the summer of 1811, Monsieur de Talleyrand came to preside over an electoral college, summoned, I think, to elect a senator and two deputies to the corps législative. He arrived with a large household and gave several dinners in the fine apartments of the Hotel d'Arenberg, placed at his disposal by the blind duke. On this occasion, he showed again all his great and charming manners, which contrasted in a comical fashion with those of the Archbishop of Malines, who had the appearance of a scapin in a violet cassock. About the middle of the spring of 1812, we began to see troops passing through on their way to Germany, Several regiments of the Young Guard came to Brussels and remained there. Other regiments only passed through the city. Instructions were received to bring together the farmers' wagons hitched to four horses. Sometimes the order was received only in the morning, and it was necessary the same evening to have eighty or one hundred wagons assembled, provided with forage for two days. The gendarmes had to gallop in every direction to notify the farmers. The latter obliged to leave their ploughs and their work were in very bad humour. But who would have dared to resist? The thought never occurred to anyone from Bayonne to Hamburg. We served several substantial meals to the corps of officers, who came at ten o'clock in the evening and left at midnight. Doubtless very few of these brave fellows ever returned from this disastrous campaign. No one had any idea that a French army would go as far as Moscow. Therefore, when my husband, upon his return from a trip of several days to Paris, brought back a very fine map of Poland and Russia, we were astonished that Lapie had added upon the margin a little square of paper on which was the name of Moscow. The map did not go as far as the meridian of that city, and when pinned to the draperies of the salon, everyone thought that this precaution on the part of the mapmaker was very unnecessary. It was a prognostic. During the last months of this same year, young Auguste de Beaufort paid very marked attentions to my elder daughter Charlotte, who at this time was sixteen years of age. She was very tall and, without being pretty, had a very distinguished air. She was a noble demoiselle in every sense of the term. In this affair both the heart and mind of young Lidekoke were involved. He felt that Mademoiselle de la Tour du Pin, with her personal charms, her name and her connections, although without fortune, suited him better than some good Belgian girl who was very rich and very obscure. He declared to his parents that he would not marry any other woman than my daughter. 
his father raised some objections but his mother in the hope that the political career of her son would be favoured by a marriage which would take him out of his country obtained the consent of her husband the first day of the year eighteen thirteen at ten o'clock in the morning madame de liedeclerc was announced she demanded the hand of my daughter for her son i was prepared for this request which i received and agreed to with pleasure madame de liedeclerc wished to see my daughter whom she embraced and it was arranged that the marriage should take place within six weeks. My daughter Cécile was at the convent of the Dame de Bellemont, where she had been for six months preparing for her first communion. I promised to take her out the day of her sister's marriage. At the same time, we received news that Humbert, then sous-préfet Florence, had just been named as sous-préfet Sens, Department of the Yonne this news filled the measure of our contentment my husband had gone to nivelle to be present at the drawing of the conscription necessitated by the continuation of the war which the emperor had undertaken i was alone at home before luncheon when i saw the secretaire general of the prefecture enter with a dejected face he informed me that the courier from paris had just brought word of the dismissal of my husband and of his replacement by Monsieur de Houdetot, préfet of Ghent. This news struck me like a thunderclap, and in it I saw, at the first moment, a cause of breaking off the marriage of my daughter. However, I made up my mind not to yield without a fight. Without awaiting the return of my husband, to whom I had sent a courier, I decided to leave at once for Paris. I owe it to Monsieur de Liedekerk to state that he came to see me with an eagerness and a warmth which must surprise him now if he recalls this circumstance to beg me not to change our plans in any respect. I left my aunt and Madame de Morville to pack everything which belonged to us in the prefecture, and at four o'clock I set out for Paris. I had had so many things to do and to arrange in the space of two hours that I was already fatigued when I set out. The night passed in a wretched chaise de poste, and the anxiety caused by our new position gave me quite a high fever, with which I arrived at Paris at ten o'clock in the evening. I went to the house of Madame de Duras, whom I found out. Her daughters had just gone to bed. They arose and sent someone in search of their mother, who, on returning, found me lying on her sofa, worn out with fatigue. There was no room in the apartment to lodge me, but she had the key of the apartment of the Chevalier de Tussy, our common friend. My femme de chambre and the servant, who had followed me, went and prepared a bed in which I took refuge at once, but without finding the repose of which I had great need. The next morning, at an early hour, Madame de Duras came with Dr. Auriti, whom she had summoned. He found that I had still a good deal of fever, but I told him that it was necessary for him to get me on my feet at no matter what cost, and that I must be in a state to go to Versailles before night. He then gave me a calming draught, which caused me to sleep until five o'clock. 
I do not know in what state of health I then found myself, but at any rate, I did not pay any attention to it. I had a carriage called, and dressed in a very elegant toilette, I went in search of Madame de Durat. We set out at once for Versailles, where the Emperor was staying at Trianon. We stopped at an inn, Rue de l'Orangerie, where they put us together in an apartment. I at once opened my inkstand. Madame de Durat, to whom I had confided only my desire to have an audience with His Majesty, saw me take a fine large sheet of paper and then copy a rough draft, which I had drawn from my portfolio, and said to me, To whom are you writing? To whom? I replied. Apparently, to the Emperor. I do not like small measures. The letter written and sealed, we again got into a carriage to take it to Trianon. There I asked for the Chamberlain on duty. I had taken the precaution to prepare a little note for him. By a fortunate chance, he was Adrien de Meun, who was one of my best friends. He approached the carriage and promised me that at ten o'clock, when the Emperor came from tea with the Empress, he would hand him my letter. He kept his promise and was as satisfied as he was surprised when, on looking at the address, Napoleon said, speaking to himself, Madame de la Tour du Pin writes very well. It is not the first time that I have seen her handwriting. These words confirmed my suspicion that a certain letter written to Madame de Nîmes had been seized before arriving at its destination. After our trip to Trianon, we returned to our hotel. About ten o'clock in the evening, while Claire and I were debating as to whether I would have my audience, yes or no, the hotel waiter, who up to that moment had considered us as simple mortals, opened the door and cried, De la part de l'empereur! The same moment, a man covered with gold lace entered and said, his Majesty awaits Madame de la Tour du Pin tomorrow at ten o'clock in the morning. The good news did not trouble my slumber. On the following morning, after having drunk a large bowl of coffee, which Claire had prepared with her own hands to brace me up, as she said, I set out for Trianon. I had to wait ten minutes in the salon which preceded the one where Napoleon received. I was very glad to find no one there, for I had need of this moment of solitude to arrange my thoughts. A conversation on tete-a-tete -tete with this extraordinary man was an event of great importance in my life, and nevertheless I declare here in all the sincerity of my heart, perhaps with pride, that I did not feel in the least embarrassed. The door opened. The usher, by a gesture, made me a sign to enter, and then closed the double door behind me. I found myself in the presence of Napoleon. He advanced to meet me and said with quite a pleasant air, Madame, I am afraid that you are very much displeased with me. I inclined my head in sign of assent, and the conversation began. 
having lost the notes which i wrote of this long audience which lasted fifty-nine minutes by the clock after the lapse of so many years i am not able to remember all the details of the interview the emperor endeavoured in short to prove to me that he had been forced to act as he had done then i pictured to him in a few words the state of the society at brussels the consideration which my husband had acquired there compared with all the preceding prefets the visit of Réal, the stupidity of General Chambelac and of his wife, a religieuse défranquée, and so on. All this was recited rapidly, and as I was encouraged by his air of approbation, I ended by announcing to the Emperor that my daughter was going to marry one of the greatest seigneurs of Brussels, upon which he interrupted me, placing his beautiful hand upon my arm, and said, J'espère que cela ne fera pas manquer de mariage, et dans ce cas, vous ne devriez pas le regretter. Then, while promenading the length of the large salon, while I followed, walking at his side, he pronounced these words, and it is perhaps the only time in his life that he ever said them, and the privilege was reserved for me to overhear him. I have made a mistake, but what can I do? I replied, Your Majesty can repair the error. Then he placed his hand upon his forehead and said, Ah, they are at work upon the prefectures. The Minister of the Interior is coming this evening. Then he mentioned the names of four or five departments and added, There is Amiens. Will that suit you? I replied without hesitation, Perfectly, sire. In that case, it is arranged, said he. You can go and notify Montalivet. And with that charming smile of which so much has been said, après son m'avez-vous pardonné? I replied to him in my best manner, J'ai besoin aussi que votre majesté me pardonne de lui avoir parlé si librement. Oh, vous avez très bien fait. I made a courtesy and he went to the door, which he opened for me himself. On coming out, I found Adrien de Meun and Juste Noy, who asked me if I had arranged my business. I only replied that the Emperor had been very kind to me. Without losing time, I entered my carriage, and taking Madame de Duras, who, unable to overcome her impatience, had come to await me in an allée of Trianon, we returned to Paris. After having left Madame de Dura at her door, I went to see Monsieur de Montalivet, where I arrived at about 2.30 o'clock. He received me in a friendly manner, but with a very sad air, saying, Ah, I could do nothing to prevent it. The Emperor is very displeased with your husband. They have told him a thousand tales. They pretend that people went to your house as to a court. With the idea of amusing myself a little with him, I replied, But would it not be possible to find another place for my husband? Oh, I would never dare to propose such a thing to the Emperor, when he is put out, justly or unjustly, with anyone. It is very difficult to change him. Well, I replied with a hypocritical air, it is necessary to bow the head. However, 
as you were going to Trianon to present four nominations for prefets to be signed. But how do you know that? he cried hastily. Without having the appearance of understanding, I added, you will propose Monsieur de la Tour du Pain for the prefecture of Amiens. He looked at me with stupefaction, and I continued very simply, the emperor has charged me to tell you that. Monsieur de Montalivet gave an exclamation, took my hands with much friendship and interest, and at the same time looking at me from head to foot. Indeed, he said, I should have divined that that pretty toilette this morning was not intended for me. The nomination of Monsieur de la Tour du Pain appeared the same evening in the Moniteur, and I received the compliments of all the people of my acquaintance who had been afflicted by the news of his disgrace. In fact, this dismissal was a fortunate event for my husband, as you will see later on. I remained several days at Paris, where I awaited my husband and the Comte de Liedekerk, who came to rejoin me for the signature of the contract of marriage. At this time, there was an assembly at court, and I went with Madame de Meun. I was dressed very simply, without a single gem, Contrary to the custom of the ladies of the empire who were covered with jewels. I found myself placed in the last row in the throne room, where I was a head taller than two little women who had placed themselves unceremoniously before me. The emperor entered. He glanced his eyes over the three rows of ladies, spoke to several with an inattentive air, and then, having perceived me, he smiled in that manner which all the historians have endeavoured to describe, and which was truly remarkable, from the contrast it presented to the usual expression of his face, which was always serious and often severe. But the surprise of my neighbours was great when Napoleon, still smiling, addressed me these words, Etes-vous content de moi, madame? The persons who surrounded me then withdrew to the right and left, and I found myself, without knowing how, in the front rank. I thanked the Emperor in an accent of very sincere gratitude. After several very amiable words, he passed on. This was the last time I saw this great man. I set out for Brussels, where I was very desirous of seeing my children, and where I had, besides, a thousand things to do. My husband went by way of Amiens, to prepare for our installation. He then came to rejoin me with Humbert, who was back from Florence and who had received at Paris his nomination as sous-préfet de Sens. Who could have possibly foreseen at that moment that ten months later he would be chased from that city by the Württembergers? When Monsieur de la Tour du Pin arrived at Brussels, he found me settled with my children, with the Marquis de Trésigny, who had offered us a very cordial hospitality. Monsieur Dutot had announced, without delicacy, that he would take possession of the prefecture the second day after the date of my return to Brussels. I was desirous that he should find no vestige of our sojourn of five years on the house which he was to inhabit. Everything which belonged to us was packed and dispatched. As for the furniture of the prefecture, every article had been put back in the place designated by the infantry. 
nothing was lacking. Monsieur Dudteau was rather put out by this exactitude, and was even more disturbed by the regrets which all classes loudly expressed over the recall of Monsieur de la Tour du Pin. He found a pretext to return to Ghent, and lived there until after our departure, which was fixed for the 2nd of April. My daughter was to be married the 20th. My husband could say with Guzman, J'étais maître en ces lieux, Sir J. commande encore. He therefore summoned the chief of police, Monsieur Malaise, and enjoined him to see that there was no manifestation too pronounced on the part of the people on the occasion of the marriage of our daughter. The mayor, the Duc d'Urcel, to the same end, fixed an advanced hour of the evening, half past ten, for the marriage at the municipality. This did not prevent the people from assembling in crowds in all the streets through which we were to pass in going to the Hôtel de Ville, which was brilliantly illuminated. On all sides we heard only expressions of regret and kindness in connection with Monsieur de la Tourupin. When we returned after the civil marriage at the Hôtel de Ville to the house of Madame de Trassigny, we found all the salons of the ground floor lighted up, and in the street under the windows was a large band composed of all the musicians of the city to give us a serenade. My husband was naturally very much pleased at this manifestation of the public goodwill. The following day, my daughter was married in the private chapel of the Duc d'Ursel. After a fine déjeuner attended by relatives and friends, she left with her husband for the Chateau de Noisy, situated near Dinan in the Belgian Ardennes. There her father-in-law had preceded her by several hours. I accompanied them as far as Tillemont. Up to this moment, I have not spoken again of Monsieur de Chambeau our friend and companion in misfortune during our emigration to america he had fallen into possession of a small fortune and had passed at brussels the greater part of his leisure time his business however obliged him to make long sojourns in the south of france for a year past he had occupied at antwerp a position which was temporary it is true but which held out the assurance of advancement when he learned of the catastrophe which had forced our departure from Brussels so suddenly, he came at once, and knowing the bad state of our affairs, he said to my husband, You are about to marry your daughter, and at the same time you are losing your position. I have 60,000 francs in securities which I have brought you. Use them as your own. He was present at the marriage of Charlotte who was his goddaughter. At the moment I write these lines at Pisa in the beginning of the year 1845, I do not know anything more about this excellent man. I saw him again ten years ago at Paris. At this time he was living in a little country house at Epigny, where he had fallen entirely under the influence of two young serving maids, who had acquired an unfortunate control over his old age. They took care to prevent him from coming near us. Our poor friend is probably no longer living. End of part two, chapter fourteen.